Hey, it's Greg Brady. Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast. We really appreciate it. We're going to talk about leadership and something I think is happening in Quebec with Francois Legault that I wish would happen here with Premier Doug Ford. And it's about making sure there aren't protests at hospitals and at schools. And that's increasingly more a concern as we start talking about the potential for vaccinating 5 to 11-year-olds. It's not here yet, but in the next couple of months, there's potential for it to be. Ryan Imgren, biostatistician and COVID expert. We check in on him. We'll talk about schools. We'll talk about positive cases popping in schools and indoor dining. Why it's now much, much safer with the vaccine mandate in place. Alan Cross will join me as well. And we'll talk about the legacy of Nirvana. What that was like 30 years ago today. The album Nevermind came out and it changed radio and it changed video and it changed music and it changed how we consumed the album. And it sure uh, was a, a death knell for an awful lot of 80s bands. I can attest to that who took a long time to recover after that. And we do What Happened When on this date, September 24th. All to come on the Toronto Today podcast. Two major points I want to hit on out of the gate here, and it's about leadership. And we can all have different definitions of what a leader is. Um, sometimes you look, and even I would tell you in our business, there's people that are just fantastic at it, that were born to do it. They also learn over time and they make mistakes over time, but they also have this sense that you would follow them through a brick wall. And you know, when you've got a boss like that, a colleague like that, I think there's an element of, of leadership where you also know when to defer and when to push harder and when to ease up on the pedal. And I think we saw this among, and you also know your jurisdiction. You know your lane. You really, if you, if you lead, you know what's your responsibility to do and what to pass off. Because, and you know this with parenting as well. If you're a parent, at a certain point in time, your kid's got to pick himself up. Not too early on. Like, right, 18 months, 18 month olds can't change their own diapers. But at a certain point in time, seven-year-olds can clean their own room. It's a gradual process, isn't it? You, you make your mistakes, and I'm going to let you pick yourself up. I'm not going to be there helicoptering around the big criticism, right? Helicopter parents. And we saw this with two distinct moves by premiers this week. We did. Okay? And as I said, I play it up the middle. I tell you when I'm impressed by something. I tell you when I'm disappointed by something. Period. Plain and simple. In Quebec, the premier there is Francois Legault. Do I admire everything he does there? Hell no. But we're all now able to walk and chew gum at the same time when it comes to politics. So I put praise towards Francois Legault uh, yesterday because he says he wants to introduce a bill that bans anti-vaccine protests near schools and hospitals. Is that more effective than a tweet going, hey, hey, I'm here. Can we all just, you know, I don't want to see protests uh, outside no, because you put legislation in that makes it illegal, okay? You do realize that when you drive past a cop on the DVP, which is now a limit of uh, 90, uh, and you're going 130, that cop isn't going to go, hey, I'm just going to discourage you from now on not to drive 40K over the... You know what's happening. You're getting flagged. You're getting a ticket. The only question is, will he reduce it or she reduce it? So the province's three main opposition parties are open to passing this bill. They're working in concert together in Quebec. Francois Legault was asked about it yesterday at a news conference, and he said enough is enough. I cannot accept to see anti-vaccine people in front of our schools and hospitals. So I will use whatever is necessary to stop that. 
What, what, that legislation, what can that entail? We'll uh, uh, table that and we'll uh, tell you that uh, soon. Look, of all the things that should be made illegal, I would make the case that's one of them, okay? Never mind the fact that you're messing up the day for doctors, nurses, EMTs, ambulance drivers, on and on. But you're causing, even if it's not in a practical sense, uh, and you're getting in the way of them, there is that added stress. And there's scenarios where, hey, you've got a right to protest. You've got a right to make a sign. You've got a right to say what you want. Of course you do. But we aren't we aren't going to let you come into the school. Well, I pay for a school. We've had, we've seen this in the States. We've seen protesters go into actual schools, actual public schools complaining about masks, which I think is ridiculous. I can have an opinion about masks that might not match yours and where we should wear them and how long we should wear them and how much our kids should wear them. We can have a conversation about that. And at the end of the day, maybe we're going to agree more than we disagree. Maybe we're going to be adamantly disagreeing five minutes more than we thought we would five minutes after we debated it. But what we're not going to do is march into a school and have the debate and have a bunch of placards and signs and chants and megaphones inside that school. We're going to let the kids learn and we're going to let the teachers teach. Similarly with hospitals, this is a no brainer. And this is the leadership that I'm talking about. And again, we've got to stop the whataboutism. Nothing's worse than whataboutism. Hey, Brady, what about Bill 21? What about it? It's gross. It's stupid. I don't like it. But does that mean Francois Legault is going to make every bit of legislation as gross and stupid as Bill 21? No. And if the three main opposition parties in the province are open to passing this bill, let's move on it. We're going to watch this happen in Quebec. We're going to watch this happen in Quebec and we'll do nothing about it in Ontario. Your guess is as good as mine. Leave our healthcare workers alone. And does this have layers of complication? Sure it does. Sure it does. Like, what do we do if nurses, actual nurses, are outside, sitting outside their workplace with placards? They do work there. How far does the law go? I understand it. I understand. We've got to figure that out. But not doing anything is worse, is 10 times worse, than deciding what the parameters of the law are. 289-975-1640, 289-975-1640. 289-975-1640, I want to hear from you on text. Does Ontario need to do this? And I know what you're thinking about why Ontario hasn't done this yet. And this is out there in the ether, so let's not pretend it isn't. Does Doug Ford and does the Conservative Party need the votes of anti-vaxxers to get reelected? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. But I know we're asking those questions. I don't have a crystal ball. I can't foresee what the election results are going to be when the time comes and when their campaigns are on. We'll be guessing at, w- at what's going to transpire here. Of course we will. Are we going to have all three of the same leaders? Ford, Horvath, Del Duca, Stephen Del Duca on the show, by the way, in the eight o'clock hour. Um, but nonetheless, we're going to ask those questions. The questions have been asked, and I, I absolutely do not think we should talk about politicians, family members. I mean, I've seen that since the beginning of time, right? It's kind of gross. We got Rush, the 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 late Rush Limbaugh making fun of how uh, Chelsea Clinton looks. That got him prominence in the early 90s. That kind of stuff's gross. You can't talk about that. You can't talk about somebody's wife like Donald Trump uh, talked about Ted Cruz's wife. You might find Ted Cruz repellent, just as repellent as Donald Trump. But you don't go there. But but when those family members are posting endless social media videos complaining about freedoms and rights and the vaccines. And when that person is the premier's daughter and 
it's inevitable not to talk about it. It's inevitable that you have to talk about it. There's anti-vaxxers in Doug Ford's immediate family. That is a fact. That's not me speculating. That's not rumor. That's not innuendo. That is a fact. You know it. I know it. The premier of Ontario knows it. I'm sure she's causing him tremendous grief. But their family business, just like mine and yours and everybody else's, stays within the household, stays within the family. But when you continue to post social media uh, about being anti-vax and how dangerous the vaccines are, et cetera, et cetera, you're putting yourself out there for public, for the public to digest that and decide whether they want to be critical or not. And I'm not going to, if other people want to shy away from it, fine. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. It's a factor. And to pretend as well that Doug Ford may or may not need the anti-vax vote to get reelected is a really interesting call. It's out there. Are we not going to talk about it? But that's what, that's the leadership that I'm looking for. That's the leadership that I'm looking for is Francois Legault saying, we're not doing this. We're going to find people. We're going to give people tickets. If you're holding an anti-vaccine protest at a school, at a hospital, there are public parks, there are street corners. We'll we'll actually use public money with police paid for by your tax dollars to make sure those protesters are safe. And we should do that unless it's at a school, unless it's at a hospital. I'm seeing this story, by the way, from uh, Sky Sports News. Um, drinking alcohol in seats at football grounds has been banned since 1985, but could be reinstated as part of a fan-led review into the game. That's interesting. When you go to Europe, by the way, you got to drink in the uh, in the hallways, like in the corridors. You can't take alcohol to the seat. I maintain if they ever did that with baseball games here, uh, attendance would plummet. People have to have they have to have a beer. It's not. There's a lot of pitching changes and whatnot. Um, I may need uh, I may need to be drinking alcohol watching my kids' team play in Sudbury uh, this this week on uh, on Sunday. It's been a lot. It's been a tough run. I'm just going to leave it there. Uh, we go up there right now to talk to uh, Ryan Imgren, biostatistician. He posted pictures. He was out for dinner last night. Social butterfly that he is. And and I I warn you about this all the time. When you post pictures about where you are doing things, you're going to get people. You're going to get the the nanny state coming after you, going, "Hey, listen, risk mitigation." But you know your risk mitigation stuff. Like like I hope you're muting and blocking people on a regular basis, like I am. Yeah, it's interesting. You know what? I think no matter what you do, you're going to get people that have issues no matter what, whether it's on one side of the fence or whether it's on the other side of the fence. In other words, even some people are saying, why did you wait until now to do it? And other people are saying, why are you out like indoor dining? You 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 actually can't win. It's it's impossible. I swear this was this was happening late last year. Uh, you you know, I I post my bike route. And uh, and like you'd be on a path going past people walking in the fall and uh, and people would be like, but you're droplets and you're, and you're riding by on the bike. I hope you're wearing a mask. I'm like, not in a million years am I going to wear a mask to ride a bike around 30 kilometers. Forget it. And so but again, we can't win, can we? No, you absolutely can't. Tell me about indoor dining. Uh, you put a, uh, a long post about 18 tweets out on it. Your uh, your research, your data, especially with the vaccine passports and mandates, uh, should make a ton of people. That that seems to be the last frontier, Ryan, for a lot of people. That's the last step to take because of how fearful we were about it last summer and fall. Well, you know what? It was the last frontier, I think, before... Um, we were able to approve the 5 to 11 vaccines. And now for some people, that's become the last frontier. I think mm-hmm. once we approve the vaccines for those 5 through 
2011, like boosters will become the last frontier. And that's why I had to put out this risk analysis because people keep raising the bar. And I think in a situation like this, when you have vaccine passports, the risk associated with indoor dining is minimal. And I assumed like a worst case scenario, this was a, you know, Wuhan restaurant with extremely poor ventilation, mask compliance among the staff was like 8%. The diners had on their mask for two and a half percent of the time. It was a super spreader event. And even if you apply those rates with the like Delta variant attack rates here in Ontario, your risks are extremely, extremely minimal. So I went out for dinner Saturday night, uh, two couples, and uh, and I'm still struck, all fully vaccinated, quite obviously, and I'm still struck by the theatricality, right, uh, of the masks. I know there's practical uses for masks. I know they, they have minimized spread for us. But right in restaurants, when do you hope or think we get to the point where you're entering a fully vaccinated environment, you're going to be eating and drinking, so we can walk right in without a mask on and we don't have to put it on to get to our table and we don't have to put it back on to go to the bathroom. Like, that's the eye-rolling stuff. Look, can we do it? Sure we can. But how long will we have to? What's your thought on on that. You're right. I think in some of those indoor dining environments where you're eating anyways with without a mask on, it doesn't really matter if you're walking in with a mask on. That's very, very short contact with you have. Mm-hmm. Now, that being said, I mean, there are some environments where you may have very, very young kids, you may have immunocompromised, whatever. But I think to remove those masks, because it isn't, you know, the world's like biggest inconvenience. I do think if we waited for one month, after the five to 11 year olds are able to be vaccinated, um, you know, in a situation like that, we could definitely remove masks. And I think we should say that before they even get introduced, because if not, we're going to have people once again, raise the bar and say, no, no, let's wait through zero through four. No, no, let's wait for this. No, no, let's wait for this. Ryan Ingram, our guest biostatistician on Toronto Today on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Let's pop to schools. And before we get into some of the data, some of uh, where we're at after three weeks of schools being open, uh, the Board of Health in, in Toronto today, Dr. Eileen Davila, is going to push the province to mandate vaccines 5 to 11. Uh, a, good idea. B, do you think the province does it? I, I couldn't get that out without a little bit of a chuckle because I think we know the answer to B. What about your A? Um, I mean, it, it's a fantastic idea. I mean, this is something which should have been done much, much earlier. Right now, frankly, we should have vaccines mandated for high school students. And it's interesting, too, because we've got an online option. So it's mm-hmm. not as if we're even saying to high school students, look, if you don't get vaccinated, we're not able to educate you here in Ontario. You simply move them to in an online environment. It's not something which you want, but if you like don't want that, you get vaccinated. And you're right. I don't think that this is something which the government will act on in a timely manner. Most likely they'll approve of something like this when it, you know, when there's a the government change, hopefully, or it becomes a like, platform of the other parties, and then all of a sudden the PCs take it on. So I'm confident that maybe for next school year it gets um like added into one of the approved vaccines, but there's no way in the world it's going to happen this school year. Ryan Ingram, our guest, uh, you wrote about it uh, a few days ago. And and just this one sentence, uh, I think would have been more controversial eight months ago. And you've been loud about it. And I've been loud about it. And I just think we've got, we've got way too much passivity, not even passive aggressiveness, but passivity among the school boards, the unions. Uh, we've got individual teachers speaking up. You wrote this. COVID-19 will be around forever. And thank goodness you're saying it. I'm saying it. I, you know, I got people who listen to the show who are like, come on, put some of these COVID zero people on. Can you explain for, for better or worse? I just, 
I don't have the eight minutes. I don't have the eight minutes to give somebody time to talk about eradicating COVID. And and I, I think these conversations were they were last January and last December's conversations, Ryan. 100 percent. I mean, the like statistics from last year showed that with even with the alpha variant, if you had 70 percent of the overall population vaccinated, which is what um, Ontario has right now, you would be able to achieve herd immunity, and you don't have to worry about COVID-19 anymore. Mm -hmm. That was the alpha variant. With this Delta variant, it's shown it's pretty much impossible with the vaccine efficacy not being 100%, with us being unable to vaccinate 100% of the population. Even if we did vaccinate 100% of the population, the the efficacy of these vaccines is just not high enough to eradicate COVID-19. Scientifically, it, it is here forever. So here's my thought on schools and you tell me if I'm right or wrong uh, and, and we can get into it a little bit we're, we we were bound to see cases pop. We were bound to see positive tests. And I understand the idea of, that some schools would have to close while some of these positive tests took place. Here's what I don't see. And I feel like the media, you know, the media coverage, I feel like they'd be all over it. If we had kids in hospitals right now, if we had kids that were suffering tremendously bad outcomes because of positive cases, it would be problematic. We're not your concern and my concern is get acquiring it in schools and taking it back to unvaccinated households or or doing reckless and, and right now not safe things with these kids i don't think your fear was ever kids getting sick because they aren't they aren't for now but but the concept was taking that virus and and pushing it to the more vulnerable people what's your thought on that and you're exactly right and that's why even if we go back to indoor dining my worry wasn't the five to 11 year olds that are unvaccinated inside of these restaurants, because frankly, who are the, who are the unvaccinated five through 11 year olds with, they are with vaccinated like adults, right? If you have these unvaccinated kids bringing home cases to vaccinated adults, we know that the COVID-19 is not going to do much to adults in those situations. You're right. My worry is those unvaccinated kids bringing those home, to an unvaccinated population. Um, and in situations like that, you're going to see rampant the community transmission. And when you see community transmission like go up, that's when you see breakthrough infections. So if we had numbers very, very low, it's not as much of an issue. But once numbers get high, we then like definitely have to worry about breakthrough infections. But where we're at three weeks in, I know I know schools should be uh, you know better set up. They're not as well set up as they were a year ago at this time when we didn't even have vaccines. But if you can, what's your message for parents sending unvaccinated kids to elementary schools? If if their teachers vaccinated, if if most of the adults in the school are vaccinated, and if they're a vaccine in, in a vaccinated household with adults. Um, I, I don't want to say what do they have to worry about. There's always a fear until we get through more of this. But what should they be thinking daily? Yeah, I mean, I wish that educators would have to get vaccinated. We're seeing now in some boards, even an actual testing protocol is not really happening. And if it is, they're just simply a testing to a positive test. But I think in you know situations like that, if you're a vaccinated parent, and you're sending your child to school and they have no comorbidities at all, they have no underlying health conditions, there is not a lot that you have to worry about as a like, parent. My the commentary on you know schools not being safe is more an overall big picture thing with how many people yeah. we have unvaccinated in the overall population. But you as a parent, if you're vaccinated, um, you know, if your household is vaccinated, I don't think it's as it's a really, really 
huge concern. I wish I could take that clip and, and deliver to every email box in the province, but the message is a good one. It's a data-based one. It's not a fear-based one. Um, you're, you're doing all the right things. Thanks for coming on our show as always, Ryan. Appreciate it. See you later, Greg. Take it easy. Uh, Ryan Imgren joining us. Alan Cross will talk about Nirvana's Nevermind album turning 30 years old, how it changed music. Some of the stuff that was on the charts in 1991 before this, you just... You, you won't believe. Uh, we'll go into that as well. Our next guest is the Ontario Liberal Party leader, kind enough to take some time to join us. He is Stephen Del Duca. Always enjoy having you on, Stephen. Thanks very much for making the time. My pleasure, Greg. Thank you. Give me a sense as to your reaction. Uh, Monday, uh, several media outlets are reporting, and, and uh, we, we see no reason to dispute it, that Eileen DeVilla, uh, Toronto's main doctor, will ask Toronto's Public Health Board to endorse her call to get COVID-19 added to Ontario's list of nine diseases. You get full, uh, inc- that, that students must be vaccinated for. Right. You called for vaccine mandates before Andrea Horvath did, certainly before Doug Ford did. Are you hopeful or, and would you advocate that vaccines for five to 11 year olds be mandated for elementary school? Uh, I, you know, I would be once they're cleared by Health Canada uh, for being safe and, and effective for use for, for kids under the age of 12. Uh, I think, you know, Greg, I, mm-hmm. I have two daughters. The, the older one is uh, 13 going on 14 and she's got both doses of the vaccine. Our younger daughter is only 10, so not eligible yet. I think parents right across Ontario are hopeful that that eligibility will be expanded. But yes, once it is, I do believe that the COVID vaccine should become part of what's mandatory for kids to be at school, part of the vaccine roster, if I can put it that way. And I felt that way for some time. Should we not have pushed already? I mean, there's only so much you or me or anybody can do. There's only about five people in the province that could really, uh, you know, jump up and down in the air and make this happen uh, and put pen to paper. But we haven't mandated high school students to be vaccinated yet. Should we already have done this? Yes, we should have. And and several weeks ago, as you pointed out, I did call for that. I've been pretty consistent on this all the way through. But I think what we what we saw really clearly from Doug Ford earlier this week when he when he finally spoke to media, I think it was just yesterday or the day before, uh, you know, he he admits that he is reluctant to do a lot of this stuff, whether it's the certificate or the mandates. And that reluctance kind of shows in the way that he and his team approach all of these issues. It's like it's a grudging. And we're always just a little bit late to the dance, so to speak. And I just I, I've said from the very beginning, we should be leading on this. We should be listening to the science on this. Almost, you know, the overwhelming majority of Ontarians have done the right thing. It's only a small segment that's still either hesitating or opposed. But I think strong leadership backed up by the science that's responsible would, would help us get the job done. Stephen Del Duca is joining us, Ontario Liberal leader um, on uh, Toronto Today with Greg Brady. I'm so glad you said that. I had a discussion yesterday with somebody, and and they're smarter than me. Uh, many are, but they pointed out to me. They said, sometimes you got to be selling something hard. And you know what politics is sometimes. Sometimes it's about promoting an idea. So when you've got the premier up there going, Hey, I don't really want like what if he said that about $10 daycare? Hey, you know what? I'm not that into this idea, but I guess that's not like you're not going to get people. You're not you're not. That's not advocation. That's not advocacy. Well, it's all. Yeah. Look, it's not it's not leadership. You you mentioned the $10 a day child care. I think, frankly, uh, I think Doug Ford is reluctant on that one, too, right? which is why eight other provinces and territories already have deals in place with the feds and Ontario, again, is late on that. So I think all of this probably helps um, helps explain that the premier is, but he knows he's seven months away from an election campaign. I think he's getting a lot of advice from his political team, his campaign team, that goes against what he personally feels. And so there's a lot of political expediency in his own calculus right now. And he's admitting that. 
that's just not the leadership we need during a public health crisis during this pandemic that's been so tough for so many already. You mentioned an election campaign coming in the spring. I think you'll get asked this in the spring. I'm going to ask you this now and get ahead of it. Do you believe there the in the concept, in the theory that Doug Ford is afraid to tick off, if you will, anti-vax protesters because he needs their vote when it comes to an election? We see Francois Legault say, I'm getting in front of this. I've got support of all the parties and we're going to make it illegal to protest in front of a hospital or, heaven forbid, protest in front of a school. We don't hear that from the premier. Do you think he needs those votes and is trying to curry those activists who would do those things? Yeah, I think it's pretty clear at this point. I think if it had happened once, it could be excused as sort of a <clears throat> a bit of a glitch or an oversight. But <clears throat> excuse me, Greg, mm, it's, okay. it's happened repeatedly. It's happened repeatedly now and it continues to happen. I think the answer is pretty clear. All right. You weighed in on Kevin Wong. I want to ask you about that. And I think it's an important uh, issue. The issue with Kevin Wong that I think you have Adam Vaughn, the former uh, MP, who's very vocal, very demonstrative, who basically introduced uh, um, Mr. Vuong to that riding and advocated for his election there. You were out campaigning with him as well. This is not the issue of whether he's innocent or guilty of the crime. You don't know. I don't know. Maybe three people know. But what what it is, is not being honest, not being accountable, not being truthful in the vetting process. Do I have that right? Yeah, that's I mean, first of all, we absolutely need to listen to believe and and work with uh, any complainant or victim in any case like this. That's number one. But number two, um, Kevin, Kevin ran under a banner and there are thousands of people in his community, Spadina, Fort York, who voted either at advance polls or in mail in ballots before the information that emerged emerged and i think those people didn't have the chance to have all the information in front of them when they voted and therefore i said days ago kevin should do the right thing others are saying it now as well he should not take his seat the people of spadina fort york should have a real choice with all of the information in front of them indicate to our audience uh and and this this gets you into the pundits chair but i think it's important and i think you could certainly speak to what it'd be like at the provincial level it's one thing for a jody wilson rabel to become an independent it's one thing even for roman baber to become an independent in in queen's park because you know they've they've done the work already they've done the lifting they're in the job for a period of time entering into politics as an independent of 338 people is going to be incredibly difficult and and really i think unfair to the spadina fort york riding because a he didn't run as an independent Stephen, and b um there just aren't those connections and 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 that layer of respect that that he or she as an independent would have yeah that's 100 percent true um with respect to the the clout let's call it or the authority um that an independent mp or mpp would normally have but so that's true but to me there's a bigger part of it which is that the people of Spadina, Fort York, those in particular who voted at advance polls or by mail-in ballots, did not. They did it uh, believing Kevin was part of a broader team, the liberal team, and also not having all of the information in front of them. And so I think, in, in essence, he effectively won that election under false pretenses. Mm. I think he should recognize that. He should work hard to deal with the complaint and make sure that he's forthcoming about that. But he should not serve under these circumstances currently as the MP for Spadina, Fort York, it's it's not right. And I and again, I've said repeatedly, it's never the wrong time to do the right thing. I hope he will examine his conscience. I think he will listen to the advice he's getting and do the right thing and not take that seat. Do you feel is betrayed too strong a word? Did he betray the voters of, of, of that riding? With, 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 in terms of trust and confidence? I, look, I think if he takes the seat, I think if he takes the seat, he, he is betraying the spirit 
of what we are supposed to do during election campaigns. And mm. I think there's there's a pretty loud chorus of voices coming from Spadina Fort York voters telling him to do the right thing. And if his opening, let's say, move is to completely ignore that and just stubbornly say, no, I'm taking the seat because I won the election under false pretenses, I think that that clearly is a betrayal of certainly the spirit and the essence of what our democracy and our elections are supposed to be all about. Ontario Liberal Party leader Stephen Del Duca, our guest. Thanks for the time, Stephen. I always enjoy our conversations. Thanks, Greg. You take care. Listen, I I thought I said no Bon Jovi on the show. No Bon Jovi. I mean... It's not a Buffalo radio station Sorry. where he tried to buy the Buffalo Bills and then potentially move them to here to Toronto. So we should actually be more thankful to Bon Jovi. Him and, uh, um, oh my God, Tim Laiwicki. That's who it was. He's not, Bon Jovi can't play Buffalo. This is Nirvana uh, from the album Nevermind, which was released today. This can't be true, by the way, um, that on September 24th, 1991, these three albums were released. Uh, on the same day, I used to work in a record store. Tuesday was new release day. It was just the most exciting thing ever. CDs, but it was still exciting. Nirvana's Nevermind, A Tribe Called Quest, The Low End Theory, and Red Hot Chili Peppers, Blood Sugar Sex Magic, which is amazing to think of because I don't think I heard Under the Bridge on the radio for like another four months after that. A gentleman that would know, our favorite musicologist, you can visit his website, a uh, journalofmusicalthings.com is Alan Cross. And uh, it's great to have you on. Does that ring a bell that those three albums, <laughs> that's one of the biggest release days in cultural history, uh, 1991, to have a tribe called Quest, the Chili Peppers and Nirvana all putting masterpieces out on the same day. Oh, you missed one. Is it Soundgarden or the Pixies? S- Soundgarden, Bad Motorfinger. Oh my gosh! Wow, All on the same day. <laughs> Rather remarkable. Rather remarkable. When did Nevermind first cross into your landscape, Alan? As, as as something that was interesting, but also something that that might have the ability to to become a bit of a rocket ship. Uh, August twenty seventh, uh, Tuesday, August twenty seventh at eleven thirty eight a.m. <laughs> and I'll tell you why. Okay. Somebody walked in the CD single. And said, put this on next. I happen to be on the air. Yeah. And, okay, what is it? Nirvana. Never heard of them. Okay, I put it on. And within 30 seconds, the request lines blew up with people going, what is this? What, what What's happening here? And we had Smells Like Teen Spirit uh, as a radio-only thing until about, I think, September the 8th. And I was doing some clubs at the time. Uh, by the end of the first week that it had been on the radio, whenever we put it on, we had a, a promo copy of it, whenever we put it on the club, the dance floor just exploded, and they all knew the words. The record hadn't even been out yet. <laughs> then comes September 24th, which was obviously this big day that we're talking about, and the record label had sent about 46,000 copies of Nevermind to record stores across the United States because they thought that, well, you know, if we sell 100,000, if we sell 150,000, we'll consider this to be a big victory. Well, within a couple of weeks, Nevermind was selling 300,000 copies a week. And by January of 1992, it was the number one album in America, uh, knocking Michael Jackson off the top spot. 
I was about to tell, uh, say to the audience, and I teased it earlier, if you look at 1991's uh, number one albums, like we had really, we'd lost the plot trying to figure out what genre was the most popular, right? We've had a punk era. We had, we had, I guess what we'd call sort of a corporate rock era. We had a new wave era, quite obviously, which I love. But when you look, Alan, like number one albums that year from Vanilla Ice, Mariah Carey, R.E.M. puts out uh, Out of Time, but then there's N.W.A., now back to hair music, Skid Row, Van Halen, Natalie Cole with the, the covers that she did with her, her late dad. So it was it was all weird. And even Enter Sandman, right? Metallica's Black Album made the number one spot about, uh, you know, a month before Nevermind was released. So we were all over the place with uh, with genres back then, right? Really homogenized. 1991 was a huge transition year. Yeah. We knew that something was happening. And... Uh, through 1990, because hair metal had gotten really tired. There were just too many power ballads and too many derivative bands from the originals. Uh, classic rock had been kind of played out by that point, although the Rolling Stones had come back with the Steel Wheels tour. But uh, it, it, it was old and it was tired as well. We have Generation X, who is dealing with a terrible recession at the time, they're concerned that they will be the first generation in a very long time not to have a standard of living equal to that of their parents. We have the Gulf War. We have, you know, all kinds of issues that are happening in society at that time. So the excesses in the party, party, party atmosphere of the hair metal thing had, it just did not work anymore. The classic rock thing did not work with mm -hmm. this generation. They wanted music that reflected their fears and wishes and wants and and concerns and anger and, and all that other stuff so, so i meant i mentioned some bands uh persevered and and didn't see a big hit rem with without a time right octung baby comes out but six months after but a lot of bands i mentioned joked about bon jovi early days a lot of bands blame nirvana's Nevermind, blame the grunge era because by the end of the 80s um duran duran's an obvious one even in excess you couldn't have found a bigger band on the planet than in excess at the end of kicks run in mid 88 um, those bands had trouble getting arrested in the early 90s, the first couple of years. Well, they did, because things changed so quickly because Generation X embraced this new, we'll call it slacker music, we'll call it, you know, uh, we'll call it uh, this, this depressing sort of angsty music <laughs> that was in perfect keeping with the time. And Nirvana was this band that, uh, you know, it was almost like grunge with training wheels, uh, and that sounds really terrible, but it was very accessible. It was also very hard. It was very angry, and it just worked. Now, if we go back, 1991, from about March of 1991, things really begin to change. R.E.M. releases the Out of Time album. Mm -hmm. We get uh, the Smashing Pumpkins' Gish album. Uh, in the summer, we end up with the first ever Lollapalooza tour, which you know, a lot of people looked at and go, why are you doing this? This is, you know, all those weird left-of-center bands. Nobody's going to go see those, those that show. Then we have Metallica's Black Album. Then we have Pearl Jam release 10 on August the 27th of 1991. Same day as Smells Like Teen Spirit is delivered to radio. Then we have the magical date of September the 24th with those four albums that you talk about. And then we go deeper into the fall. We have uh, U2's probably their best album with Octone Baby that November. So... I remember working back then and, and every, not just every month, but every, and not just every week, but every day brought something cool and neat and different. And there was this sense if you were of a certain age and you had to be a Gen Xer, that finally my music was getting the attention that it deserved. And people bought into it in a big, 
big way. I'll tell you what, too. It, it was music that a generation, of, I'm born in the early 70s, but a generation a little younger than us could finally piss their parents off with their music. It was harder in the 80s. It was harder. Like, like there were hummable songs. There were cool choruses. So when your mom's bopping along in the car to Duran Duran or Madonna or Michael Jackson, that wasn't happening with Nirvana and Allison Chains and Soundgarden as easily. It just wasn't. No, and there was that five-year period from 91 through to sometime in 1996 where this music ruled. Mm -hmm. It was absolutely the thing driving culture at the time. If you were around and you remember it being big, you aren't misremembering anything. It really was that huge. It was it was the alternative nation. It was the grunge nation. And once uh, a grunge really took off, uh, what happened was that... that um, Record labels went out and looked for anything that that was from this alternative universe, which had been evolving uh, in parallel with mainstream rock, but separately. And an interesting thing happened that year, too, and this is really important. People don't talk about it. Uh, Up until the spring of 1991, album charts were compiled based on estimates. So Billboard would call around to a representative number of record stores and ask whoever answered the phone, what did you sell this week? And obviously, if it's estimates, if it's guesses, and it's open to biases and prejudices and a whole bunch of other things. That spring, the SoundScan system was introduced. And SoundScan eliminated the guesswork because an album was immediately counted as a sale the moment you scanned the barcode at the cash register. So sales were counted one by one. And the week after, well, the first week that the uh, SoundScan chart was published, Everybody discovered that the previous charts had been wrong. Uh, country music was selling far, far more than we had been told. And so was this weirdo alternative music. So the record labels look at the sound scan charts and they don't lie because those are raw, real numbers. And they went, Oh, okay. Well, we better put more money into country and alternative. And that's what they did. And that was a big part of why this whole thing was fueled. I'm so glad you said that because I doubled back. You know what a massive summer 1984 was. Huge albums coming out, right? Born in the USA, all these albums. And I look and and Purple Rain debuts at number 11 behind uh, at number 10 Eliminator, which has been on the charts for 65 weeks. There's no way Eliminator in that week is selling more records than Prince's Purple Rain was, which everybody was buying en masse. But you you nailed it. Like in that that new um, way to, to distinguish, Purple Rain debuts at number one, just like the Use Your Illusions album did, just like the two Springsteen albums did that later that spring. But that wasn't the case in 84. No, it wasn't. Because again, they were estimates. And, you know, before SoundScan came along, you sort of got saw an album sort of creep up very slowly mm-hmm. into the top 20 and then the top 10 and then wherever else. Uh, but with SoundScan, if there was a rush on a, a brand new release, and back then, like you said, records came out on Tuesdays, uh, you knew it. And, and that record would finish very, very high rather than, you know, lower in the charts and then have this slow and steady climb to the top. So the big questions, um, and, and I'll have to go kind of rapid fire, but give me your thoughts. What was Nirvana's shelf life? Uh, had Cobain kept it together, not committed suicide? Was this a band that had already peaked out that'd be hanging on or could they have had, as I call it, Pearl Jam S staying power in your mind? No, I think they would have uh, they would have blown apart by 1995. Kurt would have gone uh, solo. He would have found mm-hmm. something else to do. 
He was uh, more interested in in a different kind of songwriting by that point. He was disillusioned with what had become of of Nirvana because he didn't he professed not to want to be a big star. And he would have moved on. I think him and Courtney would have gotten divorced. He would have that would have affected his music, and uh, he would have become uh, you know a serious singer songwriter kind of guy. Although. I don't mm. think the music that he would have made in the future would have been as hard as it was. Does And Dave Grohl, that speaks for itself then. Dave Grohl doesn't stay long term, and, and that's just been one of the most, I mean, revelatory. If you stopped time in 1995 or went back in time in the DeLorean and said, this is Dave Grohl. He's going to have a 25-year run coming up on 30 years in one of the most popular rock bands, and he'll lead it and he'll play guitar. No one's picturing that oh, in 1993, no, 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 no. When, when, when Nirvana <laughs> finally broke up, everybody, okay, well, who's going to carry the mantle? Well, it's going to be the bass player. It's going to be Chris Novoselic. <laughs> The drummer? No, come on. He's just a drummer. I mean, what did he ever do? Well, it turns out that he had been writing music for himself for, for a long, long time mm -hmm. and was a, a decent guitar player. And then in 95, he creates this Foo Fighters thing, which uh, results in an album where he plays all the instruments. And all of a sudden, people are going, um, you're the drummer? <laughs> we got a prodigy here. Yeah. Yeah, that's how, that's about how it went. You can check out Alan's website. What a brilliant conversation. A Journal of Musical Things. Alan, thanks for this remembrance. Have a great weekend. You bet. Uh, great to have Alan Cross on. Uh, and thank you for the tweets uh, documenting that as well uh, for people uh, checking in with us. Okay, what happened when? On September 24th, uh, this day in history, including a historic, historic, I don't want to give it away, but Dave, definitively a where were you moment when it happened. And, th and that whole weekend was kind of like two parts, but I don't want to, I don't want to give it away some 33 years ago. Don't want to give it away. 33? Really? Yeah. I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> well, not your birthday. No, no, no. Not just oh, that. Okay, okay. But now the irony is thick that we had this massive Canadian moment happen on your birthday when you were just, you know, an, an erstwhile teenager. Hey there, really? Right here, it's your birthday. Yeah. How old are you? Well, I... That's great. Would you like us to sing you a special song? Hell no. You got it. Ready? Sing your Bibarati. I'm already. And the one. And the two. You're the birthday. You're the birthday. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to apologize it was well done there. that was classic it's longer than the jerky boys seven second happy anniversary that it, i was going to use later in the show but since we're bringing pulling out all the stops oh, that's old school i'm okay. in sorry dave go that's okay we'll start off way back 1927 and far before i was born but uh <laughs> that's when the toronto st patrick's became the toronto maple leafs so interesting. So yeah, they uh, they were the St. Pat's uh, rolling because of their uh, uh, the owner Lester Patrick. No, that's I'm joking about that. But uh, the green and white uniforms they yeah. still wear those once a year, and they look great. Yeah, they, they look they, great when they wear them. They do, and and they break them out as as the retro thing, and of course to sell more merchandise. But we digress. Um, and and yeah, it's kind of a unique history behind the Toronto Maple Leafs, one of the oldest franchises, obviously in the NHL. On this day, 1952. Kentucky Fried Chicken opened its first franchise, believe it or not, in Utah, not in Kentucky. I like that. Yeah, Rob, what, Utah. I mean, you know, they're known for, jazz. well, jazz because yeah. of the basketball. No, they're not. No. Uh, they were the New Orleans Jazz and moved there. But, but yeah, K and I don't even know when we went full KFC. When did we go acronym? 
Like we 20 did. years ago, wasn't it? Yeah, I think it was about, yeah. yeah. Sounds about right, anyway. Yeah. I'm not sure the colonel himself, uh, who's been portrayed by like eight different actors in TV ads now, Norm MacDonald did it. Yeah. by Mario Lopez, too, <laughs> I want to say. Was he really? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, Daryl Hammond was- did it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm a big KFC person, but I do know this. I don't know, Salty Chicken, Salt Lake, makes sense. You dine oh, in, you, like, you go deep on KFC uh, one day, and then you kind of don't want it again for a few weeks. Like, you couldn't do what that Super Size Me guy did and eat it every day for a week. Oh, really? It's been over 30 years since I've had KFC. I think I only have it once. We need we need to get a bucket oh, yeah. and have a feast. Because all our hours are different. So the three of us want like a 1 p.m. lunch around 8.30 in the morning because of our body clock. So we could do some fried chicken at 8.30 a.m., I think. Uh, I'd eat fried chicken then. Heck yeah. Yeah. And on this day, 1988, this was actually a pretty significant moment. Ben Johnson... Won the gold medal in the Seoul Olympics, a 9.79, incredibly fast time. And it's a fair start. And it is Raymond Kerr with a start. It is Ben Johnson with a start. Did Kerr get to know? It's Ben Johnson. Ben Johnson does it again. Unbelievable. 9.79. Absolutely incredible. That's the call of the race from NBC, but you remember that? Carl Lewis in that race. Who was the, the guy from Great Britain who was in there as well? I think he finished oh, yeah. third. Was it Atto? I don't think it was Atto Bolden, was it? Because he, he was, was around there, by 96. Yeah. I think he was in there too, wasn't he? Or was it Linford Christie Linford by then? Christie, oh, Linford Christie, that was Christie, it. That's the name, yeah. And weren't they all dinged for doping later on? <laughs> yeah, there's a documentary. <laughs> yeah, there and all go. of them at one point in time popped a positive test. Bunch of potheads. Whoops. Also, just, why just did that not audio there. sound like it was 83 years old, not Yeah, I don't know. I'm, yeah. I'm not sure. That was uh, NBC. But that was it. the race came about 1045 on a Friday night. And yeah, the Olympics were this late. Because they looked and said, you know what? In, in the Far East, it's damn hot in the summer, which we realized this summer in yeah, Tokyo. Who knew? But I bet you it's the American networks that they don't want it on during NFL and college football, and they want it to be its own thing in July, and I get that. But yeah, they, they should be having it this time of year. And then Friday night was the race, and I think Monday, it was I was after school in the school park. Where did you find out about uh, the positive test? Do you remember? Uh, no, I don't I don't remember where I was. I feel like I was I in must, school as yeah, well. I must yeah, I must have been at school the next day. A yeah. dude named Matt Talbot came up to me in the parking lot. He goes, did you hear about Ben Johnson? And the first time you're... When people do that, you think someone's dead. Like, yeah, you just yeah, do. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I don't know why. The most obvious thing, given how he looked, <laughs> without without a, a scintilla of body fat, might be, I don't know, steroids, Greg? No. Yeah. I, I, no. <laughs> he was a car chiseled. crash. He was chiseled. I like to think the best of people. You know what I mean? It's like, you gave no, him no. the benefit of the it's doubt. It's all natural. Absolutely. Uh, on this day, 2007, The Big Bang Theory premiered on TV. Twelve seasons it's lasted, and I can't say I've watched a full episode. A lot of people feel that way. Yeah, 12 years. But I know people, like, if, if you hit the, the right demographic with teenage kids, I found a lot of parents and kids watched it together. And it made oh, yeah. stars. Like, I don't... That that um, Callie Kuoka was on the show that John Ritter passed away on, right? Eight Simple Rules. That's right, yeah. So we'd seen her, but the other people were absolute unknowns, right? Jim Parsons, nobody knew who that was before the show. That's true. Um, so it, it, it really made star. And then um, well, Mayim Bialik yeah, was on, right? Was Mayim on, Bialik? She was Blossom, right? Correct. Yes. Back in the day, so people knew her. But that was a real renaissance for her, and yeah. now uh, and now Jeopardy happening for her. So yeah, absolutely climbing yeah. the ladder for sure. And finally, on this day, 1991, Nirvana released "Nevermind" 30 years ago. I 
I know we were talking about videos. I still get a little disturbed, and they're meant. It's meant to be like a disturbing video. Like I don't like the janitor. The janitor absolutely creeps me out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is a weird video. For I sure. don't enjoy it. It's uh, like a meant to be like a high school pep rally, but then yep. things get yeah, and things get rangy. Messy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they go side completely sideways for sure. It's funny that lawsuit, right? That was only two, three weeks ago, where the baby on the cover is like, "Give me mine!" Like, yeah, you've been exploiting my nudity. For, 30 for years. years, thirty years. I'm what? thirty-one years old now. I want. I'm chasing that dollar, just like on the album cover. <laughs> and he's come out today saying, for any anniversary albums that are released, please do not use that image. But how <laughs> well, could you not? A, there is a thirtieth anniversary coming out with a bunch of new tracks, yeah, right? Or yeah. unreleased stuff. Oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. It's interesting. I got that album. I think. Two or three weeks after it came out. So I, I was on it early, only because I have an older brother. That's amazing, because yeah. I don't think I heard it on the radio until December. of the, I remember being in first year university, and I didn't hear it until maybe December Much of this year. Much music was playing the video probably by November, but mm. I remember I bought the CD only because I was into Sonic Youth. I thought two albums that same year would have tremendous impact, this and uh, Vanilla Ice's uh, To The Extreme, and I was right about one of them, but, you know. I think you were right like about I, both of them. Yeah, no, Vanilla Ice was... I'm, yeah, was I'm just like, there's going to be all the influence, there'll be 30 hits. Hits for Vanilla Ice over the next several years. <laughs> I, I Reunion go, tours. Well, he had his uh, rap rock band too, didn't he? he did, and yeah. the Ninja Turtles theme. <laughs> yeah. Got that going Rob for Van him. Winkle. Hey, thanks for checking out and listening to the Toronto Today podcast. We're back live Monday morning, 5 30 to 9, right here on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Please subscribe. Please have your friends subscribe and rate our podcast as well on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. Appreciate you listening. Back at you on Monday. Have a great weekend.